Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hi, Maria. Hi, Rebecca. (laughs) Welcome, all of you. Thanks for coming tonight. I see a lot of familiar faces from our shared days at the Museum of Contemporary Art, where Maria and I overlap for about six years. You were there and then worked um, as an editor for various publications. And um, I remember Maria was the one who first told me what a blog was. <laughs> <laughs> she said, there's this new thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, that, so that dates us. Yes. <laughs> but it was really a pleasure to read your book. Um, I really loved it. There were so many amazing details that I think spoke about you and the place where we worked and the contemporary art world. And I was wondering if you would first start a little bit by talking about the title, which I think is so compelling. Oh, sure. Yeah, the title came fairly early on. Um, I mean, it is one of those titles where you wonder, I think, when you're reading it, is it still lives or is it still lives? Um, But I was... um, I was in a museum, I think it was the Cantor art museum in at Stanford and I was looking at a still life um, on the wall and there was the wall text beside it and it started talking about how um, still li- still lifes were considered often appropriate kinds of painting for women to make um, you know and I'm talking about back at the time when Um, you know, 19th century and and earlier when it wouldn't be appropriate for women to be necessarily painting somebody naked, you know, standing in front of them or drawing from nude and so on. And that that made still lifes also seen as kind of a lesser form, um, a feminine form and lesser form. And so, you know, an artist like Cezanne actually had a lot of trouble with legitimacy at times in his career because of doing still lives, still lives. Um, Anyway, and so I was thinking about that, um, that was percolating in my head. And then I was also thinking about, at the time that I lived in LA, which was around 2001 to 2005, and then I moved to Northern California, there were a lot of, of murders of women that became high profile, um, Lacey Peterson and Chandra Levy, and um, I think the death of, even though this was prior, the death of Nicole Brown Simpson kind of hung over the city for quite a while. And uh, and I started just thinking, those, those thoughts started to sort of come together that um, the way in which we as a culture, kind of spectacularize the deaths of women, um, and and almost take the the death and the sort of interest in the sort of true crime aspects of the death, objectify the women and kind of take away their lives from them, and so what they become are objects of death in some ways. Like, oh, this is what happened to the Black Dahlia's body. This is what happened to Nicole Brown Simpson, and not so much like who they were. 
And so I think those two things came together. And I don't know the really like the aha moment, but I thought of an artist who might address both of those. And she became the artist, Kim Lord, who is the artist who's at the center, uh, whose disappearance is at the center of the book. I'm really interested in the way that you talk about Kim Lord and the, her artistic process. Um, that she decides to dress up as these individuals who have been murdered, take photographs of herself, blow those up to a larger size, and then paint from them. I'm curious about your interest in moving from the photograph to the painting, why you decided not to keep the art objects as photographs, and what about that, tr what about that translation from photography to painting? Yeah, well, um, two things happened to me while I was working at MOCA that I think influenced that. One was I um, saw the work of an artist named Amy Adler who does drawings from, or she does, let's see, I think photographs and then drawings from the, or paintings from mm -hmm. the photographs. Mm -hmm. and, and that process just sort of lodged in my mind as interesting. And then also we... Um, we had a show of Lucian Freud's paintings, and um, I went down, you know, I went through the exhibition when when it was like the opening or the press preview or something, and I was like, oh, you know, I, I it, it was pleasing or influencing, I guess, to me. But then I went down to the galleries at some point when there were no people around and went through, and I had this really painful... Um, experience of of being shocked at I guess the paintings themselves seemed th the humanity in the paintings the way that they leapt out at me the way that he created the characters in paint was like nothing I had experienced before uh, certainly not with photographs I think there's something about photographs that stills the image that 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 makes it kind of flat and placid in a way that, that paint doesn't, even though I think photog photography can be very affecting. But there was just something about the sort of fleshiness of painting, I guess, and of paint that really appealed to me. And so I thought also that an artist of her generation would have some anxiety about just painting, like mm -hmm. <laughs> that there's there was sort of a, you know, like painting's dead kind of, um, vibe in the air and so that to have a multi-layered process would make it more interesting for her but also that would enable her to inhabit the selves without exploiting them quite in the same way that if she had just dressed up at, as them um, she might have been seen to be sort of costuming herself. Well that certainly reminds me of Cindy Sherman yeah and then taking it one step beyond I also I worked on that Lucian Freud show yeah and one of the main things is that he doesn't paint from photographs he paints from life where a lot of artists like Marlene Dumas paints from photographs so you have that play also yeah. where you're right his work is really bodily and you're getting that relationship between him and the sitter yeah um, but that but that Kim Lord and what you're saying wants to, I think I wrote down a quote from the book um, where you say, 
I thought if I could slip inside the skin of a victim and emerge again, I might be able to explain why it happens. Wasn't that the reason Kim Lord made Still Lives? Mm -hmm. So that's a really curious idea. I wonder if you could talk about that, her interest in the event and embodying the victim and what that did for her kind of emotionally. Yeah, I mean, I think at least how I constructed it in my mind in the book, she goes into kind of a very private space to do that um, where she's isolated from others. And, and I think that quote just has a lot to do with Maggie's, Maggie's the main character and her growth in understanding and kind of confronting these issues in her life and in society, which is that Maggie also, she has reservations about the show when it starts. She, she's really jealous of Kim Lord because Kim Lord is dating her ex-boyfriend. She also thinks it seems kind of sensational and, you know, what does this woman know about these lives? Um, uh, but Maggie herself has to kind of also go through this journey in the book of inhabiting um, the headspace of victimhood and of, of uh, you know, the, the terrible rupture that happens when people kill other people. Um, and, and so what she's seeing in the artist is also her own journey, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Do you think Kim Lord is critical of representations of women? Or what do you, how do you think she falls on that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the, yeah, insofar as that I think every artist when they're making art is trying to put into place something that they feel like has been under uh, underrepresented or overlooked. And so they want to, I mean, part of the motivation to make things come into being, I think, is the sense that there's an absence there, that there's not, the, the way you want to do it isn't there yet, you know, or the way you, that you personally see or hope to see is, isn't in existence yet. And so I think in that way, that would be a motivation for her. Yeah. It seems like um, you and Maggie are related. Yes. <laughs> I'm just distressed how many people didn't like her. <laughs> or I think they like the parts of her that aren't like me. And so that was kind of distressing. But there are some really interesting overlaps. But Maggie doesn't like the work, it yes. seems like. And she wants to, and I don't know if it is that she doesn't like the, the work or she doesn't like what the artist represents or maybe all of that together. Yeah, at the beginning. But then I think by the end, she feels differently. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think, I don't know how you all feel when you go into a museum or pick up a book or even start listening to a piece of music. Sometimes there's part of you that's not ready or not um, there's a refusal to engage with it that comes out of a lot of different places. And I think Maggie's came from a lot, in a lot of ways from personal jealousy and, um, distrust. Uh, but, you know, you think like the overhyped artist, you know, how are you going to really relate to them? Or you think the art artist who is dating your ex-boyfriend is perhaps um, somebody who's like the envy just gets in the way of the uh, or the anger or whatever feeling it is gets in the way of um, the emotion that you might have just directly relating to the work but 
yeah, I think at the beginning she's she's definitely skeptical, and that was that was again like part of the. I wanted to start the book with the least likely person to find Kim Lord a genius to be the narrator and see if I could bend, you know, mm-hmm. over the course of the book mm-hmm. to yeah. her seeing it. So. Um, I remember when we worked together, we had a few conversations where you asked me very specific things about the art world and um, took a few notes at the time. And I was curious that as a writer, if you made many notes that you referred to during the writing of this book, or were they still fresh in your mind and your relationship to the art world still strong that you had it just in you to do? Yeah, some of it I think I just had in me. I mean, a lot of it was like the space of the museum really helps. Mm -hmm. You know, Mocha has... Um, this tower where the offices are and then it has the galleries and then it has this subterranean area where there is this incredible vault of art and it's like a flea market looks like in there you know and I know it's very carefully (laughs) tended but but it's crazy like because it's just like it's there you know like all of it like all there and then there's the rooms where people are building stuff and and just knowing those spaces, really, we did actually, um, Marcy, who's here, was a graphic designer um, on the creative services team with me. And we did like this behind the scenes issue of the members magazine. And so we were able to go and talk to a lot of people about their jobs. And that really helped me frame the narrative because I think when you know um, spaces in which you can create scenes, it, it helps yeah. with the... Um, creation of the scenes, especially because they're interesting. Like, I don't know, until I worked at MoCA, I didn't know about those rooms. You know, like, I only knew about the gallery, really, Mm -hmm. and not all these other... um, And each in each of those rooms, and this was kind of a motivating factor for writing a mystery or a thriller-type book, were people who had really different passionate agendas about art, Right? Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> Andrea was in the education department. And so it's like, that's perfect for that kind of a book because it's like, who, who's, who's done what? Well, there's so many motivations to tap into. Like this person can't stand that the you know museum is becoming commercialized and this person can't stand this person. So that, you know, creates <laughs> tension and the, you know, and this person, um, you know, hates their job for certain reasons or whatever it is. So it, 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 um, it, that was really influential, but the, I guess the research I felt like I had to do that I didn't know that much of from working at MoCA was the economics of the art world. And I, it still puzzles me even after reading a lot about it, like value, right? Like why certain things have such high value in Mm -hmm. contemporary art and others don't. What do you think? It's unanswerable. It's the kind of thing, something is valued at whatever somebody will pay for it. But it's true that the fluctuation is common and you just, you never really know. But I know you talk a little bit about the super collector and um, also the fact that Kim Lord gets this uh, choice spot on the exhibition schedule through a donation of $2 million. And that's a very direct relationship that you set up. It's like a board member gives money for this work to be on view at the museum so that the value of their collection increases. Yeah. Yeah. A little crooked. <laughs> <laughs> You're like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I mean, nowhere 
I don't know. I'm sure it's like this in New York, but LA has people with such economic power. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just so much money to throw at investments. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think it's more so even now? I mean, like I know the wet pink kind of commodity. That's what at least this economist mm-hmm. who wrote this book about the art world that I was reading called the something million dollar shark. It's a, that's based on the Damien Hirst formaldehyde shark thing, but it, you know, he talks about the wet paint market a lot and how, and this was like a book that came out in maybe 2009. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's still? I mean, I think that all of these small, these not-for-profit institutions are all vying for the same dollars and Mm -hmm. um, it is incredibly competitive and but it's also it is very unclear it is purposefully opaque and Mm -hmm. I think that the art world is generally like that you go into a gallery you don't quite know how much things cost what I mean they're supposed to actually have it on a piece of paper because they are a store and they are selling these things but so many people don't and that's and they might be choosing who they're selling it to absolutely and telling you that if you want to buy this you have to buy this first Mm -hmm. and yeah it's I mean it's very flexible fluid yeah yeah (laughs) Um, which is I don't know I mean I I don't don't think there's anything quite like it yeah yeah I don't either, because books are pretty straightforward by mm-hmm. comparison. <laughs> Record deals, I think, same. Mm-hmm. They don't really have them anymore. Um, movies. Movies, yeah. But art is yeah. so much relationship-bound. Yeah. Well, I thought that was interesting, and I was like, I could exploit that for mm-hmm. a plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With no cost to myself, which is like, yeah, <laughs> the good part of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have a question for you because I feel like, so we worked at, well, I was at MOCA about 2001 to 2005 and some of the things that I, um, one of the things that was kind of going on then too, which is in still lives and actually it's some more in the next book I'm writing is this debate over the purpose of the museum and whether it is like, like you you try to get everybody there, and then you like then you give them the art, you know, versus mm-hmm. you know it's sort of the destination mm-hmm. kind of idea versus like it's the cathedral, the preservation, the context maker, but you're not going to bring in the motorcycle in, you know, and do an art of the motorcycle show or something like that. So what do you think? Like, do you, where is that now? I mean, I think that it, that's twofold. That. A lot of people are looking at artwork digitally, but that doesn't match the experience of seeing something in person. Yeah. And where are you going to do that? I mean, people buy work, they bring it into their homes, and then unless you have access to their home, you're not going to be able to see that work, certainly the gallery. But I really feel like the museum still is the place for people to come and have an experience mm-hmm. with artwork, which is powerful mm-hmm. and meaningful. And I believe in that as something that, we should all partake in because it changes our lives and the way that we think about humanity. Different museums deal with with the rest of it differently. It kind of depends on the purpose of the institution, but certainly the other half is preserving the work for generations to come and and making it accessible at any cost, really. And that's a huge endeavor. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's that staff and money and architecture and everything. Right. But um, I think that many institutions are still very much devoted to that. Right. 
But the future thinking could include being financially viable. Therefore, you have to do certain things to make sure you're getting a lot of selling a lot of tickets or getting a lot of donors. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that... Um, you know what I mean? Like, you can't be purist entirely. Oh, do we have to give over to the wants of others in order to receive yeah. the funds to do the things? Um, I, don't I, work mean, at, like, I work at a county museum, right. and I feel like <laughs> that is different from a private institution, very much so. Yeah. Um, we are actually very transparent as a result, and mm -hmm. I've worked at two different kinds, and I can see the difference. Mm -hmm. um, and... I think also that means that we are open for everybody also. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think that smaller private museums do struggle to stay afloat and they do end up being about individuals often because those are the people who can help support them. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, another, uh, just sort of, this is slightly switching gears, but I was also curious about this question that you kind of started out with um, in your own work as a curator of photography like how much does representation of women matter you know how much is that part of your thinking when you're thinking about how the you know what the museum's showing what you're collecting what you're preserving well, this year we um, decided to acquire, we have a, a group that we make acquisitions through and we decided to acquire only work by women. Oh, wow. And we felt like that would help kind of help <laughs> change the balance a little bit. And actually all of our acquisition groups at the museum did that as well. Um, and I think that that's not hard to do here. There are so many amazing women making artwork. It wasn't like, oh, got to find them. I don't know where they are. It's yeah. like they're, you know, um, it's really a, a world in which both exist equally, men and women making great work. So um, I, I try to strike a balance, but I don't go for one or the other either. I think that that balance <laughs> right. is what's key. And I mean, in contemporary art, I think that um, kind of that conversation about representation has changed a little bit and women are photographing themselves mostly rather than kind of what was traditionally thought of as like they were perceived by the male gaze. Right. That seems yeah. passe. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, interesting. Um, do you all have any questions? Would you like, I mean, we were going to kind of go back and forth, but we can kind of broaden it out. There's so many interesting people here, so I feel like we should include you. Yes. Um, so I have two questions, actually. Do you, when you started thinking about the book, did you always know that Kim was going to die? Oh, spoiler. Well... <laughs> 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 There's probably a few, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> or not die. Right. Um, and get resurrected. Um, <laughs> Oh my God! She's a composite. She is definitely a composite of a few people. Um, 
yeah. I might not get too deep into that one either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Other? Yeah, Dan. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, as for, like, true crime, or such a true crime moment, yes. Yes, um, the podcaster. Right. And, and I mean, Maggie, very throughout the book, there's like, she's invested in figuring out what happened to Tim Bowling mm-hmm. because of her ex boyfriend, but there's also like an element, at least when I was reading it, of like wanting a little bit more sense in her life, like introspective adventure. Yeah. Um, and that tension was like really interesting to me. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, like true crime, women, men. Right. I mean, I think one of, I'm, this may be my sort of personally, personal experience might be dictating my answer somewhat to this. I think true crime is having a lot of, um, uh, you know, true crime podcasts are really getting, I don't know if anyone listens to My Favorite Murder. Or there's just so many podcasts that are true crime. And I think true crime lends itself really well to podcasts because having multiple voices and multiple kind of perspective, especially on an event that at its core has something mysterious to it, like like the Hart family. I don't know if anybody's listened to Broken Hearts, but about the um, white lesbian couple that adopted, I think, I think it was six African-American kids and then drove them off a cliff oh, yeah. in Mendocino. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like a very difficult... Like, at its core, there's so much that people don't understand, like, why this happened and why the system failed, uh, you know, these children and everything. And so it really lends itself, I think, well to serial, um, multi-voiced narratives. Um, And I think that's creating a, a kind of another layer. I mean, we've always had the datelines and the, you know, like the TV specials on true crime. But now we have this other art form, I think, that podcasts are really becoming an art form that's interesting. And, and so there's like, yet yeah, these, these stories are getting recycled again, you know, in another way. So if part of it, I do think, is the diversifying of platforms. Everybody's looking for content right now. TV's looking for content. You know, the, the, the media, um, new media kind of world is looking for content. And crime is always, a crime always sells. So we, I think we feel like we have more, partly because there's just more ways that people are consuming it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, could there be something about our political moment too? Maybe, I'm not sure I have any formulated thoughts on that. Do you? (laughs) (laughs) Do I? Um, Well, I think, actually, I would link it a little bit to um, Los Angeles in particular in the book, and maybe that makes me want to go a little bit into how that seems to be a really important character for you. Oh, yeah. And um, as, well, and that's, and it's more than just a backdrop, kind of a backdrop to crime, but um, maybe you could talk a little bit about. Yeah, I mean, I think L.A., because L.A. is the creator of our, you know, mirror, right? You know, it's the mirror that we, in L.A., so much of the mirror to our culture is created in terms of visual culture. And um, 
I don't think there's like a, you know, LA doesn't have like a homicide rate that's necessarily especially higher than uh, I don't think than other cities. I don't know, Dan. Do you know? Yeah, you did it. No. Yeah, there's a lot of murder, and there's a lot of high-profile murder, and there's a lot of of the narrative of the person who comes to L.A. for some kind mm -hmm. of dream and gets murdered, um, which I think it just feeds into the mirror yeah. issue. Because um, <laughs> we, I guess we... You did? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no. I mean, I think that the L.A., and of course, I think it's important to say at this juncture too that um, the high-profile cases always tend to be white, you know, and they there are murders that happen routinely um, in the city that don't get any media attention at all. It, you know, there's the homicide report and stuff, but there's not there's not a spectacle about it. And why is it that these murders? Our spectacle and others are just people don't want to pay attention to it you know others are just a problem or something some are a spectacle some are a problem like I you know there's something wrong there um, I feel like we've drifted really far from your question I don't know what does anybody have thoughts on like true the true crime moment <laughs> I think it's an interesting question because um, I think a lot of writers are picking up on it Yeah. Yeah, right. Like poisonings and stuff. Not being able to perceive the aftermath. Yeah. It's true. I don't, either that or they're, they're you know, psychopaths. <laughs> but, and so that, like, emotion isn't really on their wavelength. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think, and I think that creates, I mean, there's, there's two reasons why I think there's perennial interest in mystery. One is we don't understand a, why people die, but we really don't understand why people, I mean, we understand why people die because your body gets old or has a heart attack or something, but like death is still a perennial mystery to us. Like why does life have death? And then murder is like the, inco like the incompre most incomprehensible version of that. Why would someone try to take this from someone else, take their life? But then mystery writing is rational. Right, it's all about the art of deduction and sort of figuring things out. And so there's a way in which there's like the satisfaction that happens at the same time the mystery um, exists. So in the form, both a, a satisfying uh, experiment happens at the same time you're you're addressing questions that 
can't be answered. Um, and so I think people gravitate towards that over and over again. Maggie's naturally very good at that. She sort of has a journalist background and is precise yeah. and can go at the problem. Yeah, I think she gets better. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I I have written novels in organic fashions and this one I could not do that way. I had to I had what I considered sort of dreaming in notebooks time for about 2-3 months before um where I was like working out the problems of the plot and really creating a map. I mean, definitely writing out the murder scene even though that doesn't you know, the, the, God, sorry, it's like so many spoilers, but um, <laughs> none of this appears in the book, but like the, I mean, it appears as things you find out, but anyway, like the really working all that out so that I could plant the red herrings and plant the clues. Um, I don't think I could have done it personally any other way. I know people can, but I really had to work backwards from an architecture that I created. Uh, but it was really fun, too. I mean, the the process of saying, okay, I'm really... And this what made me feel a bit more like an artist, too, in the sense that I was just sketching, you know? Like, it was really creating sketches in the notebook, and they're really... It's, they're very messy and unappealing to look at, but but it helped me a lot to um, to do that first. Yeah. So... That was, yeah, Marcy. Did you read a lot of mysteries when you were younger, or did you read them in the process of, like, thinking about the book? Yeah, I did. Um, definitely. There were a few that were that were pretty helpful. And I, I think the thing, I didn't like mysteries for a long time, actually, as a reader, because of the rational part. <laughs> I'm not very rational, I think, sometimes. Um, but I began to... There's certain writers like Tana French um, and Kate Atkinson um, and a couple others that I felt like, oh, what I really like about these books is how they enable the author to talk about, like Tana French's are often about changing Ireland and like the gentrification of Ireland and stuff like that. And there's this like the real backdrop of, of what's happening in Ireland and the economic boom and everything. And I thought, oh, well, if I want to, I've always wanted to, had always wanted to talk about my experience at MoCA or the sort of LA art world experience. And I was like, this would be the, a great way to do it, which is, um, so I, I enjoy that part of it is the sort of counterpoint structure of the mystery where there's the thing that keeps you, the suspense that keeps you reading, but then also there's the commentary can be part of it too. So... Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Well, there's so many different kinds of mysteries too. There's like the cozy mystery and the procedural and the, you know, the, I don't know. The, I don't think that necessarily it's a male-female thing, but I do think women are 
claiming the investigator role in interesting ways right now, you know, um, creating investigators that are, are maybe ones that we haven't seen quite their like before, and that's exciting. Um, you know, it's not the sort of gentleman in the country kind of, which I mean is old, so there's been a lot since then, I'm not saying that, but, um, <laughs> But uh, but there's but there's there's some good stuff I think happening also just structurally and the other thing and I'll wrap this up but I think because it's such a robust and such a long lived genre at this point like Wilkie Collins to now um, you can play with people's expectations kind of this I was talking with with um, Dan and Dan uh, about this today but the uh, you know, the way Game of Thrones plays with fantasy expectations, like if anybody here is a Game of Thrones watcher, the the way in which the narrative, y you have expectations of the way the narrative is going to go because it's happened that way in so many things that you've read. So that if the author does a reversal or does a switch or kind of drops something out in a different way, um, it's interesting to you and you have to piece things together differently. I think that's that's something that the maturation of, I guess, the mystery form makes it really fun, I think, for people to play with too, because there is that really kind of codified sense of what it's supposed to supposed to do. Well, thank you all so much, and I'm happy to sign books and chat with you individually. It's really nice to see you all here, so appreciate it, and thank, thank you, you, Rebecca, Maria. and. It's really fun to be having a conversation with you, and I appreciate all your questions. I agree. Thank yeah. you. All right. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.